You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. Tonight we're going to read from Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the fountains of the thresholds shook. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Let's talk about the passage that Ashan just read. If you are new to RUF or you've been around the past couple weeks, we are looking at, and we're kind of working through a series this semester on the subject of relationships. And the way that we're structuring this is that the the Bible suggests that you have four fundamental relationships in this life. You have uh, a relationship with God, you have a relationship with yourself, and you have a relationship with others, and you have a relationship with the world. God, self, others, world. So what we're going to do is we're going to take just a couple of weeks and look at each of these. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at what does it mean to have a relationship with God. So today we're going to look at what that means. Next week, we're going to talk about how do you relate to this thing called God's will, which is kind of mysterious. We'll talk about that next week. But today, tonight... Um, what does it mean to be in a relationship with God? How do you relate to him? And to set this up, I wanted to tell you a story of something that happened to me this summer. Earlier this summer, I went camping with uh, three of my best buds from college. Every summer, me and my three college buddies, we get together and we stay in this little cabin right outside of Asheville, North Carolina. And that's our little home base. And we go rafting or we've gone hiking or, you know, we just kind of play and have fun. And this year we decided to go camping. So we drove out to the Shining Rock Wilderness area and we park our car, we got all of our gear and we hike the two hours deep into the woods to go find us a campsite and kind of set up shop. And so sure enough, two hours in, we find this little grove of pine trees. We're like, this is a sweet spot. This is, this is by the way, this is kind of a bald area. So it's not like woods and trees everywhere. It's pretty uh, sparse, except for this little grove of pine trees. So we strung up our hammocks, we got out our food, and we kind of set up our little camp. And it was about 4, 4.30 in the afternoon by this point. So we're like, okay, let's get settled. And so me and two other guys walked to go find a stream so we could pump some water while my buddy, while the other guy, Russ, stayed at the campsite by himself. So me and the two guys, we go, we go get the water. 45 minutes later, we come back, and Russ is kind of freaking out. And he says, hey, I can't find my backpack. 
We're like, what do you mean we can't, you can't find your backpack? And he's kind of smiling. Now, you need to know this about Russ. He's a bit of a prankster. We had a big prank war in college. I'll tell you about that another time. But he's kind of smiling. He's like, I can't find my backpack. And so we're like, what? And so we go into the campsite, and the food is kind of thrown all over the place. And sure enough, his backpack isn't there. And we're like, okay, he might go far enough to throw our food around to pull this prank off. So me and another buddy were like, okay, let's go look for your backpack. And so we, we go up on this little ridge thinking, okay, where did he throw this backpack of his? And so we're looking around, and, and there's, you know, it's just bushes. And we're kind of scanning the horizon. And as I'm scanning it, there's this head that pops up in the bushes, and it's a bear's head. And it's probably about from me to you in that orange shirt right there, Patrick. So from me to Patrick, I see the head pop up, and I am paralyzed with fear because now I'm in the presence of deadly, powerful animal, and I'm, if I run, it can run faster than me. If I climb up a tree, it can climb up a tree faster than me. I know it's not a grizzly bear, but it's still a bear, and it, and it made me feel like for the first time I was in the enclosure in the zoo with the animal. So after I was paralyzed for a second, I, I did the only thing that I knew what to do, which is I screamed, there's a bear! And so I get my buddy, and we run back down to the campsite, and I'm freaking out. Everything in my body is wobbly, and like I'm like, I'm like, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go. And so we get into this big debate. What are we going to do? Are we going to stay here? Are we going go, to go pack up and leave? And we, I convince them all we need to pack up and leave. And so we don't end up camping. So we pack up all of our stuff. It takes 30 to 45 minutes for us to break down all the hammocks, for us to kind of get everything back in. But we don't have this other backpack. So like, where are we going to put all this stuff that you were carrying? So I'm like, let's go look one last time. The bear has heard us talking. It's heard us screaming. It's gone. So we go up one more time. We're looking for the, I mean, where's the bear going to put the backpack? It's not put on its back and like (laughs) go through the bushes. So we go up there. And it's right there. It's still there. We see it again and we freak out again. It's like, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go. So... We gather up everything, and we leave. And to this day, I don't know where the backpack is. It's still out in the wilderness somewhere. So if you're near a group of pine trees in the Shining Rock Wilderness area, about two hours from the parking lot, and if you find it, let us know. But anyway, I tell you this story because when when we got in the presence of this bear, our plans naturally got disrupted. Like, we couldn't just do life like we had wanted to do it before because there's like a giant wild animal hanging around our little area. And I want to suggest to you that encountering a bear is a little bit like what it would look like to encounter God. To get into the presence of something so powerful that it, it has to disrupt your life. You can't do life the way that you did life before if you've actually encountered God. In fact, that's what we're going to see with this story. Here's this dude named Isaiah, and he encounters God, and life is not the same for him. So here's the question for you that I want to consider tonight. Have you encountered God? And how how would you even know if you had? Well, I think this story suggests that you can know that you've encountered God when... um, Uh, You have been disrupted, bankrupted, and reconstructed. How about that? So that's the three three big ideas that we're going to look at tonight. Three 
we're going to stick with the three, J. Scott, that um, you will know that you've encountered God when he disrupts you, when he bankrupts you, and when he reconstructs you. So, what, okay, let's start. What do I mean by that God disrupts you? Well, the story begins, and Isaiah shows up in this temple, verse 1, and it says that he sees the Lord exalted on a throne. And it says in verse 3 that there are all, the, all these angels that are kind of swirling around and they're calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now let's hit pause for a second because that word glory, that's a bible word. And so let's stop and think about what it means. What, what, the word glory in Hebrew is the word kabod, which is a fun word to say. It means kabod and it means uh, weightiness. The Hebrew word for glory means weight. And in fact, probably the best English translation of the word uh, glory that we have is, is probably the word matter. Matter, if something, if something has matter, means it's substantive, it's, it, it, it's, it's physical, it's solid, it has weight to it. But it also means that it's important. Like when you say, like, this thing matters, you're saying this thing is significant, this thing is important. Glory captures this idea of weightiness and significance and permanence and substance, Tim Keller has this great kind of uh, uh, image that, that I think is helpful here. He says, let's say you have a, a bucket of water filled up, and let's say I have a big rock, and I drop the rock in the bucket. What happens to the water? All the water splashes out because the rock has more glory than the water. But if I were to take a feather and drop the feather in the water, nothing would happen because the water has more glory than the feather. In the same way, when you look at the sun your eyes will get destroyed because the sun has more glory than your eyes. So what happens when the glory of God comes into the temple? What happens? Well, look at verse 4. It says, The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. I mean, this is a pretty traumatic scene. The train of God's robe is filling the temple. There are angels that are flying around. The whole thing is shaking. There's ear-splitting sound there's like smoke that's gone everywhere, like a big pipe bomb went off. Like this is like a scary, dramatic moment. Isaiah's life begins to get disrupted when he encounters God. He was, as we're going to see, his life was going one way and it starts going a different way after this crazy, vivid, traumatic experience. Now, here's what's crazy is Isaiah believed in God. He already believed in God up to this point. He was a good Jewish boy that was raised in the church, as it were, And yet this is the moment when God went from being a concept to a reality. He had always believed in God, but God had always kind of been a concept to him. And this was the moment when God becomes a reality with glory, with weightiness. If you believe in God, you have to ask yourself this question. Is my belief in God really a belief in a concept? Or has his glory reshaped and disrupted my life? Because if you think about it, a concept, an idea, it's lighter than you. It doesn't have as much glory than you do. So you get to fashion it. You get to design what it is like. So if you say things like, well, you know, I don't like to believe that God is like this or God's like that. I don't like God's judgment or God's sovereignty. You're, you're relating to a concept. You're saying, I, I like to think of God the way I like to think of him. Or if you say, well, you know, I, I know what the Bible says about alcohol. I know what the Bible says about sex, but, like, I don't really care, and I don't think those things are really big deals. 
I mean, you're still, you're still, you're not related to God as God. You're still related to God as a concept. He's lighter than you. You get to fashion him. You get to rearrange him. He hasn't come in and, got, and rearranged you. In the same way, uh, it's easy if God's a concept for you to fit him into your agenda with life. If you think about it, everybody has a desire and a dream of what they want life to be like and to look like. So you say, I want, I want a comfortable life. I want a wealthy life. I want an easy, successful, impressive life. And at least in the South, one of the ways to go about getting that is you download a little God into your life. Not enough to become a weirdo, but enough to kind of like help you get on the path. And so what you're doing at that point is you're saying, God, I'm, I'm going to bring you into my life. I'm fitting you into my agenda so that you can give me what I want. Again, you're still not relating to God as God. You're relating to God as a concept. You're fitting him into your plans, into your agenda. He's lighter than you. But if you've experienced God for the reality of who he is, then he has by nature to come in and rearrange your life. He, when he comes in, he disrupts you because he has more glory than you. So even deeply held beliefs that you have get disrupted and rearranged when you encounter God. The way that you live your life gets disrupted and rearranged and you're like, what I think is acceptable and not acceptable, all that has gotten changed now because in light of who God is. He's come in and just totally rearranged everything. Who you hang out with gets rearranged in light of the weightiness of who God is. What you want in life gets rearranged on, on account of the weightiness of who God is. And in fact, as we're going to talk about this deeper into the semester, how you date has to change in light of the weightiness of who God is. My point is, if you've encountered God, the God of the Bible in whom is full of glory, when he comes into your life, everything changes. It has to. It has to get rearranged. You don't fit him into your agenda. He becomes the agenda. That's the change. He disrupts you. Well, he doesn't just disrupt you. He, he, there's other things on what it would look like to encounter God. Here's the second thing. If you know that you've encountered God, not only does he disrupt you, but he bankrupts you. And let me show you where, what I, where I get that. Look at, um, look at verse 5. The glory of God appears, and what does Isaiah immediately say? He says, woe is me. For I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. I'm going to wipe my face with this. I tell you, I think I've got a sweat issue. I thought it was just a one-time thing. Oh, no. This has become a problem. So, (laughs) thanks, Katie Mason. So, Isaiah encounters the glory of God, and what happens? He pronounces a curse on himself. Woe is me. He says, I'm lost. I'm unclean. He says, I'm a sinner. He encounters the glory of God, and he begins to think of himself as unworthy. He becomes, his, his view of himself becomes undone. Now, it's pretty interesting. You may think, well, poor Isaiah. He just has a self-esteem issue, and... If you were to look through the rest of the Bible, you would see it's not just Isaiah. Everybody, when they encounter the glory of God, this is their reaction. In fact, let me give you just a little sampling. Here's just a sample. Job, he encounters God. And in Job 42, verse 5 and 6, here's what he says. He says, Now my eyes seize you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I see God and I repent and I despise myself. Here's Peter. 
Peter encounters God in the person of Jesus. Luke chapter 5, verse 8, it says, He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. John, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, why in the world, when everybody encounters God and sees God for who he is, they fall down and they think they're sinful, they think they're unworthy, they think that they're a mess, they declare spiritual bankruptcy. Why is that the reaction? Well, okay, think about this. If you're anything like me, it is easy to get a sense of self by comparing yourself to other people, right? I mean, we do this. We kind of look around and we kind of feel good about ourselves because we can always find somebody else that, like, I'm, at least I'm cooler than that person. I'm more athletic than they are. I'm prettier than she is. I, I'm funnier than they are. I'm, I, I take my faith more seriously than they do. And when you scan and rank yourself horizontally, it's always easy to have a sense of self because you can always find somebody beneath you. For example, uh, a couple of years ago, I was playing basketball with some people at the gym. And let me just tell you, I was on fire. (laughs) They would, you know, drive, drive in and try to shoot a layup, and I would throw that thing to half court. I would, I, would, I would have the ball. They cannot hold me. They cannot stop me. I was owning these people. Chumps couldn't handle this. And you should, well, you should know they were four years old. And um, this was at my son's friend's birthday party. But I was crushing, I was crushing these children. Now, if I were to play against LeBron or Steph, like, they would massacre me, and they wouldn't even, like, think about it. And my point is, it's really easy to get a sense of yourself when you're comparing yourself with noobs and chumps and four-year-olds. But if you are, if you are scanning the horizon... And you're trying to get a sense of self by looking around. You can always get a sense of self. In fact, Isaiah, as he scanned the crowd, he would have had tons of reasons to feel like he was winning at life. Jewish tradition tells us that Isaiah was royal. His father was brother to the king. So he, he kind of ran an elite, like the cultural elites of his day. And what we know about Isaiah is that he was an artistic and intellectual genius. If you wrote a book... And 3,000 years from now, there was a room full of people on the other side of the planet sitting around reading what you wrote and studying it. That would be kind of a, a sign of your success. This dude was legit. In fact, he was a prophet, which means he spoke for a living, and this was an oral culture. So for an oral culture, for him to be, a, a, I mean, he was a master communicator. When he scanned the audience, when he scanned people horizontally, he could say, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm running with the right people. I'm the right kind of person. I'm doing the right thing. And for the first time in his life, he stops comparing himself and getting a sense of himself by scanning the horizon. And he, for the first time, starts comparing himself vertically. And he sees who he is in light of who God is. And he is undone. His whole sense of self is decimated. He's bankrupt. Because he realizes, okay, Compared to four-year-olds, I'm okay. But compared to the infinite perfection and holiness and glory of God, I'm a goner. And here's the question. Has that ever happened to you? Has your sense of self ever been decimated because you've, you've started to compare yourself to God instead of other people? 
You know what's interesting to me? When he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, he talks about his lips. His lips, that was the best part of him. That was his gift. That was his, like, his talent. And what he is saying is he has discovered that even the best parts about him are deeply flawed and deeply twisted and wrong. It's not just the bad secret stuff that he doesn't want anybody to know about. It's like the stuff he's most proud of about himself. He says, even that I recognize has not been used to love God and to love other people. Even that has been used to just for myself, selfishly for myself. And so this is the question. Have you encountered God in such a way where your sense of self has been totally kind of blown up? Where you can even begin to see the best parts about you are your greatest liabilities. I mean, this will probably sound incredibly counterintuitive to you and wrong to some of you, maybe even offensive to some of you, but I think what the Bible is saying is you will know that you have encountered God when you begin to see yourself as a sinner, when you begin to see yourself as unworthy, spiritually and morally bankrupt, where you begin to really recognize about yourself, I am way more capable of cruelty than I ever thought. I am more selfish and petty and racist and sexist and self-righteous than I ever thought I was. Has Has that happened to you? Where your whole sense of self is completely bankrupt because you're now seeing yourself in light of who God is. I think that's what it means to encounter God. He disrupts you. He bankrupts you. And then here's the last thing. He reconstructs you. Look at what happens to Isaiah the moment he declares bankruptcy in verse 6. It says, Then one of the seraphim, which is uh, like an angel, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. So you got this altar in the temple, and it's burning because there's a sacrifice on it. And the angel comes and he takes some of this fire from the altar and he starts flying towards Isaiah. Now you need to know, in the Old Testament, fire always represents the destructive judgment of God. So Isaiah just said, I see God, I'm sinful, I'm wrong, I've been bad, and here comes this fire moving towards him. And Isaiah has to be thinking, I'm toast, I'm done. It is coming to annihilate me. And that's what I would deserve. But what happens? Verse 7. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isn't that fascinating? Instead of destroying him, it cleanses him. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Here's this really fascinating scene where you've got the sacrifice of another being personally applied to Isaiah. And he's forgiven and he's cleansed. The sacrifice of another being personally applied to Isaiah. And he's forgiven and he's cleansed. Do you know that centuries after this story, when Jesus is being crucified, in Matthew 27, it says that the temple began to shake. The temple shakes again. Rocks are splitting. The the destructive fire of God's judgment is coming down. And instead of landing on People like you and me, it lands on Jesus and it consumes him on the cross so that 
we might be cleansed, we might forgiven, our guilt taken away, the sacrifice of another on the altar of the cross personally applied to you. What would happen if that was your experience? What would happen if the, if the grace of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus was personally applied to you? Well, what happens to Isaiah? Look, verse 8, God says, hey, by the way, I run this kind of big global business called Renovating the Planet and saving the world, and I'm looking for a new partner. You interested? And here's what Isaiah says. Here I am, send me. Literally two seconds ago, he just said, woe is me. And now he says, send me. What in the world just happened to Isaiah? His whole sense of reality just got reconstructed. His whole sense of self just got reconstructed. He had a taste of the grace of God, and it radically changed him. He, literally simultaneously, he was so exposed, he had never been so exposed for somebody to see everything about him, the yuck inside of him, and at the same moment, that love and grace hit that place in him, and it, and it, it reconstructed his whole sense of self. It completely changed his understanding of reality. So much so that he now began to say, God, I'm not going to try to fit you into my agenda. I am now surrendering and making myself available to your agenda. What do you need me to do? Here I am. I'll do it. That's the pattern. That's the pattern you always see in Scripture. When somebody experiences the grace of God, it propels them out into the world so that they become agents of love and grace and mercy in the world. I know lots of Christians that are content to say, just give me some Hillsong, give me a latte and a journal, give me the feels, and I'm good. And you laugh, but you need to know that that, that experience shows up nowhere in the Bible. People experience God, they experience the feels, they have the worship, and what does it do? It pushes them out into the world. If you have tasted grace, you become the kind of person that wants to share grace. Has that happened in you? Where you feel so compelled, you have, you have experienced the sweetness of God's grace to you at such a level where you're like, I, I can't keep this to myself. I've got to get, get people in on this. I want to end with this. With this. Um, I don't know if you know the name John Scully. Uh, I didn't know the name either until a friend told me who he was. In 1983, he was the president of Pepsi, which you need to know in the 80s, Pepsi was crushing it. Like they were one of the top Fortune 500 companies. This dude was a bazillionaire. He's the president of Pepsi. And in 1983, he gets approached by this no-name weirdo named Steve Jobs to ask him to come and work for a company that he started in his garage in 1976 called Apple. And he started this little company in his garage and he was doing well, it was growing. And you know, in, in the 80s, computers were not cool like they are now. This was like nerdy stuff. And so he approaches the president of Pepsi and says, hey, I want you to, would you consider being the CEO of Apple? And John Scully is like, why would I leave this bazillion dollar company to go work for like a weird nerdy computer startup with somebody I don't, I don't even know. And Steve Jobs convinced him to leave and to come work for him, and here was the line that did it. Here's what Steve Jobs said to him. He said, listen, John, 
That's what he said. Listen, John. Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water, or do you want a chance to help change the world? Isn't that amazing? You want to sell your little sugar water the rest of your life? You want to come with me and change the freaking universe. (laughs) And he leaves. And so here's the question for you. When you graduate UT, do you want to look back and say, I had a lot of fun, I had a lot of fun experiences, or do you want to change this campus? Wouldn't it be amazing if somebody 60 years from now looked at you and said, I do not know who I would be and I do not know where I would be if you had not introduced me to Jesus. What could be more worthwhile than that? What could be more life-giving than that to change people's lives, to change the campus's life? Is that what you want? Look, I I know, I'm, I'm done. Let me finish with this. Nobody in this room, my guess, will have the same experience Isaiah did, as vivid and as dramatic as an encounter with God. I have never been to church and the walls have shaked and smoke filled the place. I've never encountered God like that. But let me ask you this too. Has your life been disrupted because you've met him? Because he's come into your life in such a way where you're like, I can't do life the way I did before. Have you felt yourself bankrupted Because you know, compared to his infinite glory and perfection, you're unworthy. And have you tasted the grace of God in such a way where you feel reconstructed on the inside? You feel like you're a new being because you've tasted his love and his grace for you. The question for you is, have you met him? Have you encountered him? That's the invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. I pray, Father, that you would be kind to reveal yourself to us, that we would know who you are, that we would be undone, that our pride would be decimated, and that we would be reconstructed by grace, in humility, and with a heart for you and a heart for other people. I pray that you would, would you be so kind to even make this room full of people into a community that is propelled into every nook and cranny on this campus to bring love and grace and truth and the beauty of who you are onto this campus. Would you be kind to use us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.